Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 91st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Mitch Anthony. Mitch is the founder of an eponymous training and coaching firm for financial advisors on how to ask the right questions to have better conversations with clients. What's unique about Mitch, though, is his truly unique gift for finding the right words for effective client conversations, from describing the value of financial planning itself based on the six principles of helping clients with their organization, accountability, objectivity, proactivity, education, and partnership, to simply making the point that in the end, the role of a good financial planner is to help clients find the balance between vocation and vacation and ensure that clients prepare so they don't have to repair instead. In this episode, we talk about the importance of language in financial planning, the difference between having good rapport with clients and really building a relationship with them, why asking clients the right questions is all about engaging them by making them feel like they're answering the questions they've always wanted to talk about anyway, and why the best way to demonstrate the ongoing value of financial planning is not about helping clients to reach their goals, but instead helping them to prepare for and then navigate the never-ending stream of transitions that life throws at them anyway, which are also great opportunities for advisors to demonstrate our value and grow our businesses because money goes in motion when life goes into transition. We also talk about how the real value of a financial advisor should be measured by their ability to impact a client's return on life and whether they're living the best life they can with the money they have rather than the traditional focus on benchmarking an advisor's return on investments, which as Mitch puts it, standard and pores is a poor standard for measuring value. How the life-centered planning approach helps to address the common client question of what have you done for me lately? And the platform that Mitch is building, aptly called ROL Advisor, to provide coaching and tracking tools that advisors can use with their clients to demonstrate these ongoing values. And be certain to listen to the end where Mitch shares his key insight for how new advisors in particular can set themselves on a better track to long-term success by doing whatever it takes to, as he puts it, surround themselves with greatness and find opportunities to learn from the best advisors they can before starting out on their own. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Mitch Anthony. Welcome, Mitch Anthony, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here with you. I'm really excited about this episode for, frankly, for for a couple of different reasons. One, Mitch, you are one of these people that just has an amazing gift with words. It's something I've long observed in your writing and hearing you speak over the years that you aren't just a, a really good speaker and writer, which you are. But, you know, for most of us, like when we're trying to get some concept out or some point out, there's always like the right word on the tip of our tongue that you never actually think of until like 30 minutes after the conversation. You go like, oh, that's what I should have said in that meeting. And like, you just seem to always have the right words to describe things. And it's so, it's so powerful to me. You were out 
speaking for the AICPA conference a couple of years ago about you know the the value proposition of advice and you know we as advisors like to talk about our our you know we do asset allocation rebalancing and and like we help you with your spending your social security decisions we'll give you behavioral coaching and 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 all these different things that you know are 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 i think legitimately good value propositions but pretty much goes over the head of every client and then you boil the entire financial planning value proposition down to these six key points that that still stuck with me and I'll I'll admit I I trot out and mention to people from time to time in in client meetings that that the value of planning is is organization we help you bring order to your financial life accountability we help you follow through on commitments objectivity we bring insights from the outside world to help you avoid emotional decisions proactivity we help you anticipate financial life transitions and be prepared for them education we will give you the knowledge that you need to to deal with your situation and partnership that we're here to work in concert with you. And just like this, this, we all struggle with how to say what the value of planning is. And then you just trot out these six words, organization, accountability, objectivity, proactivity, education, and partnership, like a sentence on each. And like, that's better than anything I've ever figured out in 20 years as an advisor. Those are the right words. Stamp it. We're done. Well, I'm I'm flattered that you like it, and I was really quite honored that you you know you wrote about it, and I got a lot of people writing to me after that saying, "Hey, I'd like to use that little iconographic thing that you put together." And and it's funny, I even met a guy here in my own town who was working for a major firm, and he said, "I've been using that in every prospect meeting I've had for the last three years, and it's been a it started a good conversation," which is. I mean that's that's the importance of language is that it get it opens people up right if you if you say things in a novel way if I if I can put it that way in a way they haven't heard before they the eyebrows come up and they go oh well that's that's different from what I've heard before you know it's like a little phrase like it's better to prepare than it is to repair it sort of has a poetic quality to it but there's some deep truth to that, right, Michael? I mean, it is better to prepare than to repair. So what is it I should be looking forward to and preparing for? So uh, what I find is that the phrase, if you can catch people by surprise with the language, it opens them up. And it's, and and then I'm I'm really really particular about not sounding like somebody else. <laughs> I remember when, I, I remember listening to comedians talk about the fact that they wouldn't listen to other comedians because they because you can easily absorb what they're saying and forget where you got it and then you'll end up plagiarizing them and you look stupid, you know. And and I I remember when I first became a professional speaker, this is a long time ago, people started asking me to come to the National Speakers Association meetings, right? And I and I went to a couple of these meetings and they were all ripping off each other's material. And they were all they they all sounded like and I I came home and I said to my wife, I'm never going to another one of those meetings again because I just don't want to be that guy. Right? I just want to I just want to say things in my way or the way I think about it and I don't want to I don't want people hearing me and going oh that sounds just like so and so right but more important than how you sound is it's I want to I want to adduce 
something from people in in a conversation. I want to get them thinking and I want to get them talking. And the beauty of language is if you're careful with language. So those six things you just walked through, I just spent an awful lot of time thinking about what are the intangible values? And that's you know, when you when you when you ask people, what was that? How was that conversation with that planner? You you don't want them saying, oh, that was pretty good. You know, I mean, I that was a good conversation. You want them saying, wow, that was incredible. I've never had a conversation like that. And so I just spent a lot of time thinking about the intangible delivery of value that the planner can bring by virtue of their process. And and when it's intangible, you can't measure it. And when you can't measure it, you can't commoditize it, if that makes sense. It's a good point. I, when it's intangible, you can't measure it. And when you can't measure it, you can't commoditize it. Right. Yeah. So so asset allocation and all these sort of things that people would put out there as value propositions are all measurable. And so it's just a matter of time become before they become commoditized and people say, you know, you can get that in. And, and we're seeing we're seeing that today. Everybody that that's not news to anybody that all those sort of traditional planning values are being commoditized. So at the end of the day, what are we really delivering to people? So, for example, the thing about accountability, I I hold people's feet to the fire of their own best intentions. That's a powerful value. That's why people hire executive coaches and life coaches and, you know, all kinds of physical trainers, right? It's not that they can't count to 12 while they're lifting weights. It's that they need that accountability they, where they have to show up. I think that's an incredible value to bring as a financial planner to your clientele, to, to look them right in the eye and say, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire of your best intentions. When you tell me that you need to do something, I'm going to stay on you till you do it. And for for folks who are listening, if you're like if you're trying to scribble down these these six words and remember the the items here, we posted a whole piece on the Nerds Eye View a few years ago about this with Mitch's permission that that like I just told him these are the best words I've ever heard, so we need to share this with more people. So th- this is episode ninety one for the podcast. So if you go to kitsis.com slash ninety one and go down to the show notes, the resources section. We'll, we'll have a link out to that if you want to go look up these words and think about how you might use them yourself in in describing the, as you said, like the the value of financial planning and the and the intangible part of financial planning. Like that to me is what's so powerful about these words: organization, accountability, objectivity, proactivity, education, partnership. Like they they're they're all just simple, straightforward ways to describe the intangible aspects of that planning relationship and and what we're trying to get at when we do planning projections and tell you if you can retire and tax strategies and asset allocation, all the all the other technical stuff that we do with a whole bunch of our industry jargon. But like these are these are six words anybody can understand and apply. Yeah, and and those six words, by the way, something that come, just kind of jumps to my mind as I'm hearing you talk about this. I've long believed that there's there's the opportunity to bring inspiration in this process, if you know what I mean, right? That not not everyone's an inspirational type personality, but if you are, if you've got a, some of that in you, this is a great vehicle for bringing inspirational quality to your work, right? When you're when you're challenging people to do their best, when you're helping them get it together, when you're helping them stay the course, you know, it's I, when I think of coaching, good coaching, what what is 
What are great coaches? Well, they're people that they've mastered the X's and O's, right? Strategically, they've got a great strategy and they've got discipline around their strategy. But there's, there's also a great inspirational quality to coaches where they 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 know how to read their players and they know what to say to motivate somebody. I, I think financial planning is uh, an area where you can you can have an outlet for that sort of inspirational quality in your work. So, so Mitch, aside from coming up with the, the, the six words that describe financial planning better than any of us can figure out how to describe our own financial planning, how, how do you describe what you do? Like, can you give us a picture of Mitch Anthony in a, in a nutshell? Like, what is your business of what you do in the advisor world? Well, I feel like my mission is to help connect the financial conversation to the purpose it's intended for, which is to improve one's life. You know, I've I've long maintained that nobody gathers money for the sake of gathering money, that there's a reason for that. And that the that's the living, breathing context. Uh, an, an analogy would be, you know, what are there, 210 bones in the body? A financial plan is like the corpse, but it doesn't come alive for people until we get the stories, the stories of what's this money really for? What are you going to do with this money when you get it? What are you doing with it now? And that always comes back to life itself. And and so if you want a financial plan that lives and breathes and is animated, then we've got to get the stories of what do you want to do someday? Who who are you taking care of? What matters to you? These are these are these. There's financial tethers to all these questions and. So, you know, a phrase I like to throw out there is it's one thing to gather a story of numbers. It's another thing to gather a number of stories. And the, the it's the number of stories that I found lacking in financial, in the advisory process, the ability to get the right stories, to ask the right questions, to help understand what this client wants to do with this money. Why is this money important to them? And so I'm, I get my mission is to help advisors, help planners make that connection with their clients, ask the right questions, figure out what really matters in their life, figure out what what they what they need to change and what they're doing now and what they need to prepare for ahead in life be get ahead be proactive anticipate what's coming be prepared for it so i just want to see life at the center if that makes sense michael i want to see life at the center of the planning process so i've seen you doing this through speaking was my at least primary action first awareness of you. I think I think I first saw you probably like 15 plus years ago or so at a I think it was a, an FPA chapter meeting and you had just done a your your new book at the time called a new retirementality which was like the the story that stuck with me was you had talked about the story of a a, a client who had just retired and you know was all happy that he could finally retire after years of working towards it and working with his advisor to make it happen and you know finally got there and retired and you know uh, was playing lots of golf with all of his buddies and and doing that regularly and then 6 months later like the advisor met with him again and he's unhappy and he's miserable he's played the same same round of golf same four buddies for like four days a week for six months and can't believe he has to do it with them for another 25 years or plus of retirement. 
and and was just is now becoming miserable in his life of retirement that was supposed to be this great pinnacle of now I don't have to work and I can play more golf. And I, you know, I was just a few years into my career at the time and, and spending most of my time just trying to figure out how to do the number crunching for that plan to help that doctor be able to retire so that he could play all the golf. And it was one of those like record scratch moments for me of like, we're doing all this work to help clients save and prepare for retirement. Oh, I never thought about the fact that once they got there, they might be bored and miserable. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> well, now I don't know what the heck I'm doing here as an advisor. And, and you know, as you said, like it just, it, it opened my eyes for the first time to a whole other side of the dynamic of planning and the whole purpose of this advice we're, we're doing that, yeah, you know, if what they want to do is get to the point where they can stop working at 65 and be able to play more golf, like there's some number crunching and some analysis to do and some recommendations we give that can help them get to that path. And that's all well and good. But pointing out to them, you know, if you do this plan, you just said you're probably going to be miserable six months into retirement. And here's why is a much more powerful conversation and, and something that I had just just never thought of, never conceived of until I, I heard you talking about it for the first time. Yeah, it's that. Well, first of all, I, I, I just remember when I was young thinking, I don't get this. The, the, these people working for 40 years at something they hated so they someday could have enough money to buy an RV. That is kind of the quintessential, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and and then get behind the wheel and watch their navel expand for the next decade, right? It's like, what? This is not a dress rehearsal, people. And I just I couldn't wrap my mind around the idea, and and yet so many people did it. And then so I got curious about retirement, and I started studying it. And you know the history. I think most people listening to this probably know a little bit about Otto von Bismarck and the history of retirement and really that it's a relatively new phenomenon in our world in terms of a, a social construct. And when I realized how new the idea was, and when I under, when I finally understood the context within which it was created, which was the industrial age, where you were trading physical capacity for a paycheck, right? And so, okay, that made sense, I guess, right? If you're 60 years old and you're tired and you're not as motivated and you're not as strong and you're not as, you know, you just don't have that that vigor you once had, maybe you do get out of there and they replace you with a 20-year-old and the machine just continues to hum along. But what if you're making a living with your gray matter? What if you're making a living with your relationships? What if you're making a living with your experience and the insights that come from that? At what age do those things expire, right? Where, where's the born on date on Michael Kitts's gray matter, <laughs> right? Or, or not, not the born on date, the, the, the use by date, the use by date, right? And so when I started thinking about that way, and then I started sitting down and talking to people and finding out, you know what, the the stuff you saw in the retirement brochure wasn't really true for everybody. And for a lot of people, retirement is a horrible idea. And then what if you're one of those people, you know, if we're going to talk about, here's the thing that I always, <laughs> this kind of blew my mind, Michael. People were having these retirement conversations and failing to talk about the one thing that we should be talking about, and that is work. That's the thing you're retiring from. Did it ever dawn on anybody that we ought to be having a conversation about work? And what do you like about your work? And what do you not like about your work? And if you could describe the perfect situation, what would it look like? 
that's a much better conversation than just assuming that when you turn turn 62 or 65, you're going to stop working. And, and, and so that's a, that's a vocation conversation. And I've sort of long maintained that what people are really looking for is a balance between vacation and vocation. That's another one of those word plays that sort of gets people to stop and go, run that by me again. People are looking for a balance between vacation and vocation. And vocation. And so in America, we don't have, most people don't have a balanced situation. What they do is they burn out at vocation and then they completely quit. And then they think they're going to go full-time into vacation and that that's going to work. That's not balance. That's shifting your binge, right? And, and so when you find this balance between vocation vacation and by the way vocare the 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 root word means it's it's about a calling there are people that don't have a job and god help me if i had a job i just i couldn't handle it i feel a sense of calling in what i do and i'm sure many of the people listening to this do as well right and so if you feel a sense of calling in what you do at what age does that expire this is, I, you know, I know it's philosophical, but, you know, I was in, in my formative years philosophically, I read an awful lot of Viktor Frankl, right? And that, that it's about meaning. Life is about meaning. And so a lot of people's job, if you will, or career has meaning in it. And I live in Rochester, Minnesota, home of the Mayo Clinic. And I talk to doctors all the time. And let me tell you, there's a set of people right there that has a really hard time with retirement, right? Because they're such a such it's such meaningful work, and so many of them have a sense of calling about what they do, and suddenly they're just supposed to walk away from that and be happy, and be happy with what playing golf with the same guys every day and hearing the same jokes and the same complaints. It's Groundhog Day. It's got everything but Bill Murray, right? And so, anyway, I I, I know I think I'm just kind of rambling here, but I'm it's. I, it's- I, I mean, frankly, it's it's something that I think resonates in the advisor world, not only because a lot of us see this in practice with clients that, you know, they 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 build up for retirement and they're trying to get there and we're helping them to get there. And then they suddenly get there and then we're meeting them with the first year or two or three thereafter and either they're, they're unhappy or miserable or they're already like going off and finding some other work and other thing to do, which a at best gets ironic, like spent a whole bunch of time working with you to get to retirement so that you could not work. And then within a year later, you went back to work. And even worse, if I'd known you were going to go back to work, we actually could have done this like five years ago because you didn't need to save as much if you were going to go and work in retirement as it turns out you're going to do. And I think there's a piece of this in, in, the advisor world in particular that you know there's been a, a lot of industry studies that keep pointing out you know the average age of an advisor is is 50 something close to 40% of advisors are 55 or older therefore you know 30 or 40% of advisors are going to retire in the next 10 years as they approach 65 and i've been one of those people pounding the table for years now and in, in part i think being very influenced by some of what you've written around this Around this retirement mentality in general, to say, why why would there be a wave of retiring advisors in the next ten years because they're getting in their early sixties? Like you can do this in your seventies. I know a few advisors that are still doing it in their eighties. Maybe 
not quite as actively as they did before. And you've dialed down their clients a little, but the sad reality is a few of your clients are probably going to start passing by then anyway. So the client load kind of naturally adjusts itself that like, what if the wave of advisors that are anticipated to retire aren't going anywhere for 15 to 30 years from now, not in the next 10? And and the fact that every year we talk about this ongoing, this this looming wave of retiring advisors, and then every year the advisor count doesn't actually go down. And it's happened for four or five straight years that they've been predicting the 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 wave of retirements. I, I think sort of emphasizes the point that we 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 experience this ourselves in our businesses. Like it's a great business, particularly if you've been doing it that long and you're and you're that far in your practice. Like you make good money, you have good relationships with your clients. It's mostly enjoyable work. You've usually at least grown to the point that if there's some not enjoyable work, you can hire someone else to do that part. Why would you walk away from that? That's right. That's right. I've had that same conversation. I, I remember having a conference call with a bunch of 65-year-old advisors who were on the cusp of retirement. And one of the one of the gentlemen basically iterated what you just said, and that was, this is easy now. I, all my clients know they can trust me. We sit and talk about life. We're, we're friends with a lot of them. And I make more money I've ever made in my life. Why, why, why do I walk away now? <laughs> you, you, that, that, that's a valid question. It's a valid question. And experience matters. Experience really matters in financial planning. And you've got all this experience. And it's, you know, when they asked Warren Buffett why he didn't retire at 65, he said, uh, he, he, his answer was, I'll, reti- I'll retire two years after I die. You know, he just, he knew that if you're not using that gray matter, it's going to begin to atrophy. There's, to me, there's, there's just this dynamic of how retirement's evolved over the better part of the past hundred years or so. Like it started, as you say, I mean, the, you, know, you go back to the early like Autobahn, Bismarck, German structure. Like the original purpose of of setting up a retirement fund was basically because people were, you know, it was the industrial age. You worked with your hands and physical labor. People got so old they couldn't do the physical labor anymore. They were literally becoming obsolete in their in in their ability to earn and, and do business. And as a society, we to, we had to do something <laughs> with all these with all these old obsolete people. So we said, well, we got to provide for them somewhere somehow. So we'll make this, you know, social security thing or the, their equivalent and then we applied it as as social security as as this safety net for the uh, for the literally obsolescent physically obsolescent worker then at some point along the way we tried to morph it from a bad thing you you have to retire because you can't do the work anymore to let's make it sound good you'll retire into retirement and there'll be beaches and adirondack chairs and and all the all the imagery that we created to say like, no, this doesn't have to be a bad time in your life. This can be a good time in your life. You're finally done with work. And and now that we spent a couple of decades trying to turn it from the bad obsolescence thing into the good you're working towards it, now we seem to be getting to the next stage, which is maybe it's not actually that good and natural in the first place. Yeah, well, Del Webb got a hold of the idea and sold the whole, you know, 
leisure life entitlement, right? And actually, before Dell Webb came along, it was the financial services world that glommed onto the idea and said, hey, this we could make this an incentive for saving money and investing money. And that's that's where it started. I, I, I can't remember the fellow's name, but it was some executive from an insurance company gave a speech in 1952 or 53 to that effect, and it caught on. And so suddenly it became, you know, this Once. great... In, this great it's a incentive. Pressing. I hadn't quite thought about it that close to home. Like, to what extent did we in the financial services industry invent this retirement thing so that there was a good excuse to get our clients to save giant piles of money with us? Well, that's exactly what it was. And <laughs> it's a little depressing. I, I often I often taunt my audiences and say, Wow, this is great. You've built an entire industry around a really bad idea. What are you gonna do now? Right. Well, and, and and I have you know, there has been some discussion that's starting to crop up of you know, what, what would it look like if people planned for a more steady rotation between, as you put it, between vacations and vocations, right? Like I, I do a career for 15 years, then I take a three-year sabbatical, then I do another career for 15 years, then I take another sabbatical, and I just do that back and forth until I'm, I'm 80 and then have a relatively short retirement. And if that's your plan, what you discover is – well, disability insurance becomes way more important because if that gets interrupted, it's really bad. But as long as it continues to work, you never need to save that much for retirement. I mean, you need a little, but retirement doesn't last that long and you're not very active by the time you get there. So you don't actually need that much, which really messes with the business model for most financial advisors that's kind of predicated around building up pools of assets. Like it's not that those people may not need advice. In fact, arguably they may need more advice to navigate those transitions effectively, but you would build up shorter term savings and then use it in the next transition and then build up shorter term savings and use it in the next transition. You wouldn't build up one giant pot that gets absolutely enormous and then spend it all at the end. You know, I've had people get upset with me when I talk about this and say, well, what? how in the world am I going to incentivize my clients to save money? And I said, well, why don't you just talk to them about emancipation money, right? To me, that's a, that's a greater motivator than retirement is to have enough money to do what I want, when I want, with whom I choose at the pace I'm comfortable with, right? It's freedom money. That's a great motivation for saving and investing. So you can call your own shots in life. Who doesn't want that, right? I become a huge fan of framing this not in terms of of retirement, but simply financial independence. That you know, you you are now your time is now financially independent of what you do with it. So do whatever you want with your time. If it makes money, that's cool. If it doesn't, that's okay as well. Your time is financially independent. Now do whatever it is that's rewarding. Right. Right. And we, we have a need, you know, and, and also, you know, you heard me talk about this in Las Vegas at a convention we're both at recently. And the, sort of the health implications of all this is that the jury's in, the verdict is in on the idea of full-time life of leisure, that it actually is not a positive thing. And there's gerontological studies demonstrating this. And one male gerontological researcher put it to me this way. He said, a life of total ease is two steps removed from a life of total disease. And he described for me how when people get bored, they then get pessimistic. And once they get pessimistic, it becomes this downward spiral, both psychologically and physically. And I I did an interview here. I wrote about this in Financial Advisor Magazine last year with the head of 
of psychiatry or, or psychology at the Cleveland Clinic. And this guy told me that he spends his entire week counseling depressed, wealthy executives. Retired, I mean, excuse me, retired executives who are depressed. These are people with a lot of money and they're depressed because they <laughs> this lost life their purpose. They lost what they wake up for every morning. That's, yeah. And I, and I, that's another phrase I throw out for advisors is a successful retirement is when you have enough purpose to get up in the morning, enough money to sleep at night. Right. So you got to bookend those two things. Money's really important, but it's not more important than purpose. And having all that money doesn't make your life. I mean, there's only so much money can do. It's like our, our dearly departed friend Dick Wagner used to say, the only people that really understand what money can't do for them are the people that have it. Everybody else still believes it. <laughs> right. So the people that have the money realize the money's great. But, you know, like one retired executive said to me, what am I supposed to do now? Hug my checkbook? That's a powerful statement. The, uh, sadly, the only people who really understand what money can't do for them are the ones who have it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And everybody else believes it can do all these things that it can't do. And I, I Michael, I can remember, tw so 20 some years ago, before I even got involved in financial services, I used to speak in schools, right? And I would, I, I was the guy that came into the gymnasium and they put all the kids in there and I talked to them for an hour about life and choices and all that sort of thing. And so every summer, I basically had the summer off, right? Kind of like a school teacher can if they want. And I remember I vividly standing on the number seven fairway. I'm an avid golfer. I love golf as much as anybody. And, you know, that's the great retirement dream, right? So you can wake up every day and do nothing but golf. And I remember standing in the middle of the fairway on number seven with my wife. And I looked at her and I said, I'm wasting all my energy, competitive energy, creative energy on this game. <laughs> you know, I realized right then and there, I could never retire and have only that to do. So how, how did you get started into these discussions and visioning, visioning and focus around financial planning and, and thinking about retirement differently and figuring out how to quant, how to explain what we do. Like what was your pathway to the industry? Well, I, I don't, I don't know if I have ever, I don't know if you and I've ever talked about this, but I am truly a, a accidental tourist in financial services. Like I still shake my head and go, how did this happen? Right. Because I, I was literally, you know, I spoke in schools. I spoke to three and a half million kids and teacher conventions and all this stuff for years. And one day my little girl and I are out in the backyard and I'm teaching her about planting a flower. It's on a May day. Right. And we're out there digging up some dirt and we're going to put this seed in the ground. My wife walks out with a telephone and she says to me, it's a broker. And I think, and why are you giving me a telephone with a broker when I'm having this special mo life moment with my little girl? And I pick, I take the phone and the guy says, hi, my name's Jim. And I said, no, thanks, Jim. N not interested. And I hang up. My wife looks at me mortified and she goes, they've got a banquet tonight at the country club with 400 people and their speaker from Atlanta sick. And somebody told them to call you. I said, <laughs> and you, and you hung said, up on him because you thought he was. <laughs> well, I said, honey, did it ever dawn on you to give me that as a turnover <laughs> phrase, as opposed to it's a broker. And so, and so the, this is so funny. That was the first week we had caller ID on our phone. It was, you know, 
the, the great technological advance in 1998, right? And so I looked at the phone and I pushed the caller ID button and it showed me the guy's number and I called him back and I'm apologizing and humbling myself. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Tell me what's going on. He said, well, got all these people coming and somebody told me that you're a good speaker and maybe you could fill in for us. <laughs> Apparently not great on phone skills, but a good speaker. <laughs> little, little lacking upon introduction. And so the irony was the person that told him this was a guy out the golf club who had been stuck on the tarmac with me during an ice storm for two hours and had asked me what I did and I told him and he asked me to send him a CD and he listened to it and he just happened upon this situation. Okay? So the just the purest of like three steps removed of random serendipity. Oh, unbelievable, right? So it gets better from here. So he says, well, what well, what could you talk about? Well, this was at a point in my life, 1998, where I was beginning to think about this whole idea of of what a weird idea retirement was. I hadn't written anything on it. And I had actually developed a talk called Don't Ever Grow Old, right? About the whole attitude thing and lifestyle thing. And he said, oh, that sounds perfect. You know, we're, we got a free chicken dinner and half these people are retired and the other half are getting close. <laughs> I said, so oh. like this was like the broker's prospect event because this was the era of yeah, seminar, yes. seminar marketing. Yeah. So like free chicken dinner, man. Okay. So, so like you, you were the fill-in speaker for his free chicken dinner marketing seminar. The, yeah. Well, and you know, the, I think he called it a client appreciation event. Uh, okay. Yeah, we, we, we have better labels for it, but yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Right. So, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how many prospects were there or what it was, but anyway, I was the guy who took the mic that night and I gave my talk and there was a lot of you know, there's a lot of humor in it, and but it was a lot of challenge philosophically for people about the whole idea of age and old and retirement and all these things. So I talk about the next day, I get a FedEx envelope from a mutual fund company called Van Campen Funds out of Chicago, okay? And in the FedEx envelope is a sort of a value add program they're trying to put together about communicating with people that are mature communicating with the mature client and, you know, kind of like the Dykewall kind of age. Yeah. Wave, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like age wave stuff was. And, and so there, there's, here's this sort of half baked program in this envelope. And then the note says, who are you and where did you get these ideas? Call this number. Our senior vice president of marketing wants to meet you. Be, like, because. What? Because the Van Campen wholesaler was at the dinner that, event. That's, ex that's exactly right. <laughs> and, and he was one of the people that the guy had tapped to help pay for the event. Yep, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, that's why the Van Campen is there. Absolutely. <laughs> right, I know right. how it works. I don't, yeah. I don't think wholesalers go to these things because they want more chicken. Yep. And so, <laughs> so, so I get this. So I go to Chicago and I meet the senior vice president of marketing, and he hadn't even listened to my talk. Right. This is a month later. I come in and visit. And and so I was like, wow, did I just waste my time or what happened here? And he had he seemed to have no clue about why this wholesaler wanted me to come meet him. And then so I point to my CD sitting on his desk and I said, well, that's me. I gave that talk and your wholesaler heard and he thought it'd be a good idea for us to talk. And he goes, oh, oh, well, I didn't have time to listen to it. What else do you do? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I do what's on the CD, man. <laughs> well, what else do I do? And he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, well, <laughs> what do you need done? He said, no, seriously, what else do you do? I said, well, so I told him another idea I'd been working on. That was using the analogy and the metaphor to help people understand complex ideas, right? 
And I'd long been a believer in that. And I, and I thought in the financial world that people use too much jargon and clients were confused and didn't really get what they were talking about. And so I told them that. I said, I don't think people really understand what advisors are talking about. And I think if they'd learn to use the analogy and the, and the metaphor better and say, this is kind of like, then it would help people understand what in the world they were talking about. Now, I'm sure you recognize right here that this is basically the thesis that became the book Story Selling. Okay. And so he says to me, he turns around, this executive turns around, gets on his phone. He said, Brent, how's that presentation? They had a 1998 year-end review presentation. They were working on a PowerPoint deck, right? And he said, bring it in here right now. I want this guy to see it. And so the guy comes in and he puts this PowerPoint thing up. And it was the 1998 report to shareholders or what year-end review, right? And, and the guy who put it together said, this is really bad. I got to warn you ahead of time. It's really bad. And he puts it up and he runs slide by slide. And it's exactly what I was saying in my criticism. It's just like so full of jargon and it made no sense at all. And, and I'm like, tell me, tell me this. I said, and, and the whole gist of the presentation was about investing in international stocks, right? They were trying to convince people that's a good thing. And so I said, how old is your average shareholder? They said, 66 years old. I said, well, why don't you, and, and you want them to feel comfortable with international investing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. I said, well, then they're grandparents. Why don't you talk to them about when the kids come over and drop the grandkids off and they come driving up in a Subaru or a Volvo. And when the kids get out and they take their console, their their game out of their bag. And what, what, what's the name of the, you know what I mean? Not, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, like Game Boys of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah whatever. I, I, it, was, it was a Japanese company that made it, right, at the, that we're talking about the time. And then the kids asked for some Nestle's Quick that they could drink. And, oh, by the way, Grandpa and Grandma, all these things are made in other countries. Why don't you just tell a story like that? That, 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 was, the, that was the beginning. And this senior vice president said, Oh, I, I want to know more about this idea. And so he became my co-author on the book, Story Selling. Oh, that was Scott West. That was Scott West. And Scott, and I'm still, I still to this day, now Invesco bought Van Campen. To this day, Scott West is a good friend of mine. Gary DeMoss is a good friend of mine. I still, they still, I still work with them on developing ideas. They have a really good value consulting group, tremendous consulting group. For advisors aren't familiar, like this, this, this is a whole book. This is a whole phenomenon now called story selling as a way to position your value proposition about what you do as an advisor. So, what when did when did story selling first come out, Mitch? It came out in two thousand or two thousand one. We just came out this year. Our public the book has been a perennial bestseller for our publisher. So they would never redo the book. So I finally negotiated with our publisher to let us redo the book and and distribute it internationally. So we just came out with Story Selling Revisited 18 years later. And boy, have the author's pictures changed. I got to tell you. <laughs> it's, it's right. And but that book has been it, it just it. It instantly became a bestseller and it opened the door for me to go out and speak all over the industry and start talking to people about how do you use the analogy and the metaphor. I, I define a metaphor as using the language of the known to explain the unknown. Use the thing they get 
to describe the thing they don't get, right? So it starts with, you know, the master of this was Jesus with his parables, right? It's kind of like, the, you know, the kingdom of heaven was kind of like Aesop and his fables, Ben Franklin and his poor Richard allegories. Your great wise teachers always use the analogy and the metaphor, not the literal. And you know why? Because people will argue with the literal, but they won't argue with an analogy. They'll absorb it. They'll absorb it. And so... Anyway, that, that opened the door. So, so Invesc Van Camp at the time said to me, we, we will pay you to use this idea. And we want to want you to, if you get other ideas to tell us and because we want to develop value added programs that help advisors get better at communicating with their clients. And so all of a sudden I'm being paid to think up ideas, which I, I don't have to think them up. They just come to me. <laughs> right. And, and I, and I'm, I love looking at how things work and asking, why do we do it that way? Why do we do it that way? And who made this up? And I like tracing it back to its origins, right? And finding out who invented this, why they invented it, the context within which they did. And then when you do that enough, you realize there are a lot of things going on that nobody's thought about for years and we could do better. And so that I went from the story selling thing, which was all about how to communicate with your client in a way that they'll understand and make make it easier for them to make the decisions they need to make to I started thinking about the retirement thing that we've already talked about. Then I started looking at the financial planning process and I saw a lot of holes in that. And I saw too much emphasis on numbers and not enough on the story and the, in the context of, of the, which is the life of the client. And so that's what got me going down that path. And that's a path that just has just continued to move on and on and on and, and, you know, take it, it's taken on a life of its own. So, so storytelling, so story selling was kind of the, the, the first in new retirementality was the second, and then you kind of shifted all in on financial planning and the process. And it, that I guess that's the that's the one that keeps on giving as the as our space evolves and grows and changes. So too is has what you've been working on around it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 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 so what was the what was the first transition in? Because I'm trying to think back. Like I had seen your new retirementality work, and then. I know you were doing some things around life planning as well, but I, I don't know like when that transition happened or how that happened. Well, I, I started a company, I uh, had a partner and we started a company in 2001 and to start promoting the idea of financial life planning is what I chose to call it and create tools by that people could use in their discovery processes, advisors could use in their discovery process to get better at understanding who their client was and what mattered and where their life was headed and what they needed to prepare for. So I start, started developing this suite of tools. I'm just wondering, how, how did you come to the point of, of creating this? Like I'm trying to remember the sort of the timeline of, of this coming out. George Kinder started talking about a life planning movement, I think like the early to mid 1990s. George had been out there for a while. He has his three questions and and his evoke process. So you like you were coming in saying, no, no, like th- this is my take or here's a a different a different structured way to do it. I mean, you can come at this a lot of different ways. I think George kind of came out with this thing in the late 90s. And around 2000, 2001, I started getting invitations to come to the 
FPA national convention and different chapters and and everyone was talking about this life planning stuff and it was sort of a it was a it was a kind of a firebrand issue you know people had strong opinions on both sides of it and I just sort of had a little different take on it and I just felt like so what, what was calling- the issue at the at the time, like just well, some people, people saying, saying this is the future, yeah. and others are saying like, no, no, no. You know, we're we're here about the the numbers and the dollars and the investments. Like, just that that tension. Yeah, yeah, basically that. And also, you know, the big complaint was, I'm not going to advisors shouldn't be trying to play psychologist. That was sort of a popular phrase, right? And and I was sort of agreeing with those people, and I was saying, you know, life's important. But I don't know if calling an advisor a life planner is a good idea because it feels like a bait and switch. And why are you talking to me about this stuff, right? Because because I'm going to talk to you about all this life planning stuff, but I'm still expecting you're going to pay me by buying my insurance product or my mutual fund or giving me your assets to manage or something else that isn't directly pertaining to the life planning conversations that we were having. Yeah, it, it felt it just, uh, and I'm just coming at this from a communicator's point of view. It felt awkward to me, and 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 it felt awkward to me if I was a client at where I'm going to go to my financial advisor and they're going to start asking me these deep questions about life. And so I just proposed that we call it financial life planning, and that the questions be that we we have the ability to demonstrate with all the questions we ask how it's tied to your money right and and we tell people before we ask a question why we're going to ask the question we're going to ask i call that getting permission to ask right and then so that the client can relax and go oh okay now i see why you're asking me this and then we're able to demonstrate very quickly how the answer to that question is tied to their financial well-being and then after we hear the answer or the opinion or the perspective or the story the client has to tell, we then go into the, the final phase of the, of the dialogue, which is I, I like to call it anchoring and saying, well, now that, now that you've explained your view or now that you've told me your story, maybe we should look at doing the following financially. So it's all about money and life and the connection between the two. And so it's not this esoteric conversation, some people would view, you know, those sort of questions that don't have to do with money as being esoteric conversations. And, there, you know, there, there, are, there are other conversations floating around financial services, too, that were a little bit awkward as well, that felt very Freudian and not just, you know, there's there's a number of dialogue paths out there that were being promoted. Right. You know, Kinder's, Kinder's three questions are very powerful for people and and for those who are wondering, you know, we we had George Kinder on the on the podcast in the in the past as well. So if you're interested, you know, we we have it in the show notes here. You can just go dial back. It was episode 15. But you know, I mean, I've I've known a number of advisors that struggled with this as well. That just Kinder's three questions, which are all built around you know you 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 have 10 years to live. What's important to you? You have you know one year to live. What's important to you? You've just found out you have a terminal illness. You know what? What do you regret not doing? Like they're they're really weighty life questions about you know have, have you spent your life well and and are there things you want to do differently? And sometimes you realize, you know, oh my gosh, if I was diagnosed with a terminal illness, here's my one primary regret. Then you say to clients, well, great news, you're not terminally ill. So when are you going to go do that thing? And like it's it, it's a powerful conversation. But you have a good point. Like not exactly what people thought they were going to get when they went into a 
financial planner wealth manager's office? That 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 was, and I I love the the questions. <laughs> I love a deep dialogue. I think they're you know, and I also have found that the people that go through George's training seem to increase or broaden their capacity for better for better dialogue. You know what I mean? They just get better at it. But at the end of the day, there was that surprise factor that you just articulated very well that I just felt a little awkward with. And so I set about designing questions and discovery processes that weren't awkward at all. Right, that that I could quickly demonstrate to you that I'm going to ask you some questions you may not have been asked before, but I can I'm going to also demonstrate to you why it's important to your financial future to think through these things. Powerful right there, just saying like I'm going to ask you some questions that you may not have been asked before. I'm going to show you how they connect to your financial future. Mm-hmm. And, and and if I'm going to talk to you, and so you know I I've. I, I, you probably know this, but I've always been a big proponent of getting your clients' history. The histories, knowing their past is more important than talking to them about goals. And and so before we even get into the money, we can say to the client, you know, we're going to talk about your money. But as a planner, it's more important to me to know who you are than it is to know where your money is. <laughs> right? So if you don't mind, I'd like to take a little bit of time and just Get a good get an idea of your personal story. Well, who's who's going to say no? I don't want to talk to you about that. Right. You know the the good news of this approach is virtually everybody likes talking about themselves, so this tends to go well. <laughs> well, it tends to go well, and you know what? Here's the other thing: most people, I know, so many people, they've never had the opportunity to tell their story because nobody's interested. Right. And all of a sudden, here you are, this financial planner, and you are interested, and you're you're. You're you're genuinely curious about their story. And then as you understand as you hear their story, you start you find things that you can relate to in their story. And that's I've always believed that the relationship you hear so much talk, Michael, about building relationships in this business. Relationships are the result of the exchange of stories. That's how relationships get built. And so we we need to be good at educing people's story, and there's got to be a reason for asking. I want to know your history. I want to know how you got into this business. I want to know how you got to where you are today. It helps me understand you. And to me, I that I I I have have had companies calling me for twenty years to look at their discovery processes, and I'm amazed at what passes for discovery in this industry. It just blows my mind. It's just a collection of numbers and facts. It's, there, there's no discovery in it at all. <laughs> well, and, you know, this this may have been yet another legacy thing that that rubbed off from reading you in my in my early years. I don't really remember where I heard it first, but someone made to me what is a really powerful distinction between data gathering and discovery. And and as the name kind of implies very literally, like data gathering is about the data. Discovery is about the client. And and ultimately we need both. Like I I I do need me some data so I can do some number crunching because I'm I'm pretty good at that and think I can add some value there. But there's also a discovery process about the client themselves and that you have to be focused on on both to the point now that i i try to even talk about them separately like look that first meeting with the client is not a data gathering meeting it's a discovery meeting we might gather to gather the data before or after or maybe we'll fill out a little bit of it during but separate those out conceptually about 
when are you doing the data gathering and how, because that's numbers and facts and you know, software can help with that. And then there's a discovery process that's all about conversations and stories. Yes. Yeah. And I, so, you know, for example, we, we, we need the numbers, we need the facts, but people are not revealed through those numbers and facts, really. It's the stories they tell that reveal them who they are. And that's what discovery's really about. And so, you know, I've encouraged people, advisors for years to ask to first just get to know their general history and then to sort of segue from the general history and say, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a little bit of time and, and get a better understanding of your financial history as well and some of the experiences you've had. And a good a good starting point for that is, you know, where are you from originally and what was money like growing up? It's amazing how much people like to answer that question. They love to talk about what money was like growing up. And then they'll tell stories about mom or dad or, you know, good good habits or bad habits and experiences. And then from there, I like to encourage advisors to ask, tell me about what you would describe as your best and worst financial experience so far in life, right? Not just, not just an investment experience, but financial experience. It could have had something to do with a mortgage or whatever. But at the end of the day, we want to hear about people's experiences with money. And we, un- we want to understand how it's in- impacted their behavior and their thinking. That's what discovery is really about. And by the way, you know, I mentioned this, that I live n- next to the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic, you know that name. Everybody knows that name, right? Be- the- year after year, they are the top medical clinic in all the world. Let me tell you something about Mayo Clinic doctors. Every time you may go there for a visit, you might have a condition, you might see five different doctors in in your visit. Every single one of those doctors will start the conversation exactly the same. You know where they start? Your history. They want to hear your history. So that's to me is the blueprint right there. They want to know your history because they know that's had a major bearing on where you are right now. So the distinction for what you were developing in this in this direction was trying to tie it back to the money more directly and what we do as, as advisors, which I guess that's why you called it financial life planning when George was calling it life planning. Right. But, but he then – adopted the term financial life planning a couple of years after that because it just it just it just makes more sense and a lot of people have adopted the terminology and and which I think is great and I've sort of shifted since then you and I've talked about this offline and and that is I'm I'm beginning to use the fr- the, the framing of life-centered planning life-centered financial planning as a way of describing it because I think there's just so much stuff out there claiming to be financial life planning that in my opinion really isn't. And so I'm just trying to sort of differentiate with a different form of language now what we're talking about. So how would you draw the distinction between life-centered planning and financial life planning? I don't know. I I don't know that I could. I'm just saying I'm choosing to use a different form of language to describe it now. And because it's financial planning that we're talking about, and it's financial planners that are best at this when they get it, but it's putting life at the center of the planning process. So that's the reason I'm calling it life-centered financial planning. And I'm actually actually about to introduce with 
a leading university in this space, a course, nine credit course called Life Centered Financial Planning. It's going to be a certificate program and it's going to be a master's level program as well. And that we're, that's what we're going to call the course is Life Centered Financial Planning. And the curriculum for that is going to involve emo- planning with emotional intelligence, the whole idea of life-centered financial planning and how it works, how these discovery processes work. And then another part of it is going to be communication and counseling skills, a course that Dina Katz had developed. The, the university I'm working with is Texas Tech. And so in in the winter semester, January of 2019, we're going to be launching this this course. So I'm just... Yeah, it's just sort of a, a, a language thing that, that I've chosen to distinguish it with a different sort of framing. So you were creating these tools to help facilitate this discovery process. So are, are you still building those tools? Like can advisors access those tools? What Because you're kind of, I know we're still a couple of years in the past now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So present day, I've got a couple, couple, three different firms that I've got partnerships here in the United States and in England on this. Here in the United States, partnered with Steve Sandusky, and we've got a company called ROL Advisor, which stands for Return on Life Advisor. And that's that we just launched that in December of last year. So what are we? We're September now. Right. Okay. So I guess we're two months away, two, three months away from our first year anniversary. And to date, and what we're trying to do there is give discovery tools to advisors, basically a turnkey solution so that they have marketing tools, discovery tools, training, everything they need to, to be a return on life advisor to have these kind of conversations and to engage, to give a client experience that clients that really resonates with clients and helps them to see the powerful value of having their life at the center of the financial conversation. So to date, we have about 245 firms that have signed on with the program from nine different countries. And um, so that's going pretty well. I'm I'm, like, what, is it? I mean, what do you get if you're assigned? Like, is this software? Is this? Yeah, yeah. There's so there's software. There's three unique tools. One is called the Fiscalosophy Profile, understanding how people's views and perspectives were shaped on eight key financial issues. The fiscal fiscal like philosophy. Yeah, but that's another one. That's one of, another one of my neologisms. So I'm just it, it doesn't flow off the tongue as nice as I'd like it to, but it's the fiscalosophy profile. So it's how, how did you arrive at your thinking on these key financial issues? That's the first one. The second one's called the return on life index, and it measures how well you're using your money to improve your life situation in 10 key aspects of life. So that's a way of measuring success that's highly personal and it's not comparative. And what kinds of areas like you say you know how well you're using your money to improve your situation in, in yeah areas? with with your career with your residence with your relationships with your sense of your personal security you know 10 10 aspects outcomes education right 10 areas of life that we're all trying to improve basically it comes down to are you making progress are you improving your well-being and are you are you feeling your personal freedom those are the three major categories, right? Well-being, progress, and freedom. Uh, 
Well, are you using your, are you doing the things you need to do with your money to achieve those three things in your life is the question that's getting answered with the return on life index. And a lot of investment advisors and financial planners are using that as sort of a lead gen tool, a way to get people engaged in the conversation because their build is widgets for the websites oh, on their website. Okay. So this, this isn't just a like, Hey, I've got my client on board. Here are three or five or 10 interesting questions I can ask in my first client meeting or that like a questionnaire I can give them before they come to the first client meeting. This is stuff you might use with a prospect. Yeah. Yeah. You can use it with a prospect and you can use it with a client as well. But the reason I created that tool is because I'm tired of advisors reporting progress based on a comparative basis. I think it's an idiotic idea. You mean like right? benchmarking investment results, in other words? Yeah, benchmarking with an index. You know, They that measure their progress by the standard and pores have a very poor standard, in my opinion, okay? So I just it just makes no sense. It makes no sense. And, so it, and it doesn't impact my life at all that I did so, such and such against such and such. Progress to be meaningful must be highly personalized. It's kind of like the track coach who says to the kid, I want you, what, what event do you want to run? You want to run the 400? Okay, run. We're going to, we're going to clock it and that's going to be your personal best. And then from here on out, we're going to try to improve incrementally on your personal best. That's an effective way of measuring progress. So that's why I created the return on life index is I want people to be able to measure how well they're using their money to improve their life because I define return on life as getting the best life possible with the money I have. That's why we gather money to improve our lives. So we created a tool to help people measure that. And then the third tool, and this is, I'm, I've been developing tools for 20 years, and I'm really super excited about this tool. It's called the Financial Lifeline, and it's a, it's a collaborative conversation between the advisor and the client where we sit down and we literally map out all the transitions that are coming in your life in the next 10, 15 years, and, all the, and we're able to demonstrate to the client how their money is implicated in those transitions and how it impacts their financial well-being. And there's over 60-some transitions that people people can go through between the cradle and the grave. And so what happens is literally a portrait of that client's life appears on this lifeline and they see that they need financial advice around all these transitions in their life. And it just underscores the tremendous value that wise financial advisors bring to their situation, right? That they're speaking into the financial aspects of all these key life transitions they're going to be going through. I think would think particularly for the advisor that works with clients on an ongoing basis where there's always either the the pressure of what have you done for me lately or just the the pressure to explain and articulate like what you know, we did a plan my stuff got sorted out why why are we working together and why do I have to keep paying you on an ongoing basis and say well well let's map out what your transitions are over the next 10 to 15 years all right here's a whole bunch you're going to have to deal with all these. Some of these take a long time to prepare for. Looks like we have our work cut out for ourselves. Yeah. And we've also got a retro view on that. So let's say you've had a client for 15 years. You can go in and backload all the transitions you've already helped them through and show them since we met, here's all the things that we've worked through. Now we got to talk about what's ahead. And, and a little economic law of life that I teach to the advisory community is that lo- money goes in motion when life goes in transition. It's actually a cause effect, cause and effect issue at play here. The life transition is the cause. The money in motion is the effect. 
all advisors are concerned about money in motion. They want it moving toward them, not away from them, correct? And so it tends to be good for business to have the money moving toward you and not away from you. Well, then strategically, it just makes sense then that you would pay attention to the thing that causes money to move, and that's life transitions. And you, and so I challenge my audiences all the time. I say, name any transition in life, and I will, and we can demonstrate how that transition causes money to move. So I remember years ago, a bank did a study on how soon should you be talking about the retirement transition with your clients in order to ensure that the assets will stay under your administration, not move somewhere else. And the answer that they came up with in that research was four and a half years before the actual transition. Well, if it's true of that transition, it's true of all transitions, that we need to be talking to people about the transitions before they happen and help them to see that we need to be proactive. It's better to prepare than it is to repair. We need to anticipate this transition and we need to prepare for it financially. We need to have a plan in place before it happens. And and you and you sort of were alluding to this when you in, in your preface here to this this conversation. The, the conversations that planners are having get redundant. They get rote. They get boring. I, I know a lot of planners are just bored with the same old revisiting of the same old, same old. When you start having this financial lifeline conversation, it's fresh. It's animated. It's real. It's real life. These are great dialogues that you're having with your clients. And your clients are seeing the a value in what you do that they've never been exposed to before. So, so the program is, it's got these three tools in it, but it also has coaching and it has marketing ideas. And we give them, we give all of our, our ROL advisors content that they can put out to their clients for blogs and whatnot. So we're just, we're helping those practices that really want to position themselves as a life-centered planner. We're giving them the tools and the, the instruction. We have education hours every month. You know, we just want to equip, educate and equip. Those that want to practice that way. And so it's it's kind of a combination of content I can take back from my website or use with clients, some online tools I can give them directly, like, you know, have them fill out their philosophy profile or, or their ROL index, and I can use them how I wish in my practice. Yeah, that's right. And then another another partnership that I have that's really you're going to be hearing a lot more of in the next year or two is with Paul Armson in the United Kingdom. Paul has been a voice. He's called it lifestyle financial planning, but he's now calling it life-centered planning as well. But Paul has been sort of, he's been playing the kind of role that I've been playing and George has been playing in different players in this space over in the UK. And he's done a tremendous job and he's got a great story. And he's got one of the greatest conferences I've ever been to. It's called Back to Y, B-A-C-K, number two, letter Y. And it's the only conference I've ever been to, Michael, where there are no sponsors allowed. Okay. He's not taking, nobody can pay to get the microphone. And, and it's a powerful conference. I'm going back there to speak next week. And Paul and I have started a company called lifecenteredplanners.com. And what we're going to do in that company is we're this is going to be a content type site where you can learn the skills, the discovery skills, learn questions, learn ways of thinking, learn dialogues. It's we're not going to give tools away, but we're going to educate people on that site, and we're going to challenge the industry to, with the question: Are you going to be a money centered planner or are you going to be a life centered planner? Because there's a great difference between the two. 
And if you want to be a life-centered planner, we want to start educating you on what that's all about and the kind of questions you need to be having and the kind of things you need to be learning. So that site is going to launch this this fall. Okay. And so that's, that's not meant to be, you said, like not meant to be tools, just literally show up and see some good conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a learning track, right? So basically people will subscribe to it. They'll go at their own pace and they'll learn all the skills necessary and the dialogues and the questions and, you know, it's all video content. And, and what, and what's the pricing for these different tools for people that are, are curious to want to check out like a ROL advisor and now what you're building with Paul with life. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to speak out of school on the life centered planning, but I believe it's going to be in the 40, some 40 pounds. So however that translates 50, $60 a month on that site, the life centered plan or the ROL advisor is in the neighborhood of $200 a month for licensing. Okay. So just help helps for advisors to kind of get a, a yep. framing around yeah. this. Yeah, and they can go they can go to either one of those sites, lifecenteredplanners.com or roladvisor.com and read about the different things that are that are available. So I'm you know, I just want to promote the idea of life-centered planning and putting life at the center of the process and I want to help equip the people that want to do it well. And I want to challenge those that aren't doing it to think about doing it. Because it brings more value to to the client. So we'll we'll have links out to these in the in the show notes as well. Again, this is episode ninety one. So if you go to kitsis.com slash ninety one, we'll have links out to ROL advisor and life centered planners and and the rest for those who are interested in looking at them more and, and thinking about if it's a fit for their practice. I mean, the the thing that always strikes me about these, and it's it's just it's just kind of the nature of the advisory business. You know, even most firms generate several thousand dollars of revenue per client. Like whether you're AUM based and you have a couple hundred thousand dollars as an average client, or if you're charging planning fees for a couple thousand dollars, or, or you're getting paid for implementation and make a couple thousand dollars, like most advisors generate a couple thousand dollars of revenue per clients and and some go up from there. So you know it, it's this world that we live in where you you only need tools or solutions like this to literally help you with one client ever <laughs> and and you know the the client's annual revenue to stick with you as a client give you know, generates a full ROI on an investment or at least get gets you your money back and if, if you ever get a second client you've now made 100% ROI well the thing the the, the tremendous value of life centered this life centered approach is it completely takes the what have you done for me lately off the table it no longer it no longer exists. So what how, like because they see it. Aren't clients still at some point going to say like you know but or but I haven't had a transition lately or you know but my portfolio still isn't performing as well as but I see, hoped. By by virtue, yeah, it's not like we're taking the money off the table, right? The, the, but but it's the secondary value. The primary value is what's happening in your situation and are you financially prepared? That's value number one. Value so so it's your wisdom that is that you're selling in that situation, and then your second value is how we're investing your money and how you're doing, but that only exists to support the first value, which is helping you get through in the best possible way, right? So so what I mean by taking what have you done for me lately off the table is that literally that has been you know that 
the how how is your money doing has been the lead value and 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 let's just say you did a financial plan a lot of times the, the client says well you haven't really done anything lately i mean you did that 3 years ago right why am i still paying you the same amount i mean we're we're naive if we don't, if we believe people aren't thinking that and so what happens is when you have these conversations about their life and what's happening and what they need to do to be financially prepared, it builds that relationship to the point where the client understands the value in that. And they, they just don't care as much about the fee because they just sense the value. So you've mentioned a few times this dynamic of advisors we tend to get measured relative to the performance and the assets and the classic ROI conversation. And, and it's really about, or should be about return on life, not return on investment. So can you, I, I don't know, can you, can you just talk about that shift more? Like, I, I feel like it's the thing that we all would love to say we do, right? Like, well, yeah, of course I'm helping the client achieve their goals, right? That's why I do financial planning, I'm helping my clients get to their goals and then we're, we're investing the dollars and, and getting their insurance and all the other things in place so that they can get there and we'll give them tax advice so they do it tax efficiently. But you know, sure, we're, we're all working towards client goals. That's the point of financial planning. How do you distinguish that from what you're talking about? Because I, I, I think it's different, but I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to think about the difference when we all say, well, we all start with what's the client's goals. Like, that's financial planning. I, I think the goals conversation is an important conversation, but it's not the central conversation. And everyone tries to approach clients' goals, but I distinguish the difference between transitions and goals. You need to talk about transitions before you talk about goals, because goals are what we want to happen. Transitions are what's happening anyway. That's real life. And so many, so many advisors out there are focused on what are, what are your goals? And then there's a, some assumptions and all that. They just assume they want to retire at 65, you know, that, that's that sort of thing, right? And, but life transitions are what is happening anyway. This is real life. So my, my kid's finishing up his senior year at college. I got a daughter who's getting married. My mother just had, just found out my mother has Parkinson's. These are real life transitions. and. You know, to me, every advisor needs to know about those transitions in their client's life because each of the things I just mentioned probably has a financial implication to it that needs to be talked about. And so we, uh, to me, we have to get better at this transition dialogue. And that's the spinal column of life-centered financial planning is understanding where the client's life is now and what changes are on the horizon, what changes are coming. Goals is a completely separate conversation. Nobody has a goal that mom falls down and breaks her hip. Nobody has a goal that their ch their daughter's child is a special needs child, right? But it's real life, isn't it? And it's the real life stuff that we need to know about our clients. It's a powerful framing just to say, Everyone talks about goals, but planning for the transitions is what matters. I don't even know if you would say planning for the transition or just dealing with the transitions. Yeah, dealing with – well, and transitions come in two forms. There are those we can predict and those we can't, right? And it's like Roy Diliberto used to tell me. He said once he started talking about transitions, started using the transition tool I created, he said suddenly – 
I was getting phone calls from people saying, you know, I, I thought I should call you and tell you something just happened in my personal situation. And they were, he was one of the first two people they started calling when something happened in their life because he was so good at showing them how that transition was going to impact them financially. It's an interesting point, right? When you, when you, I guess very literally, when, when you position your advice around transitions, now you're really the first person people call. Yeah, you're the first financial responder. <laughs> I like that. You, you're, the, right? you're the first financial responder. Yeah. And so I think the industry at large, the profession at large, with this monomaniacal focus on goals, has missed the larger issue, which is life happening right now. And guess what keeps people from their goals, Michael? Trying to get through yeah, the transition. Life happening all the time that tends to, tends to throw me off from the goal that was in my head about where we were going yeah. to go. Yeah. And you know what? Knowing your client's story, I, shame on the advisor that doesn't know these things about their client, right? I, like I, I used to sit and challenge advisors and I say, write down the names of your top five clients or your top 10 clients. And then I start asking them questions about their career transitions, their health transitions, their their retirement plans, all these different transitions. And they couldn't fill in the blanks. And they, and they said, oh, I got a great relationship with these people. Based on what? Right, that you talk about how the Cowboys did yes last week. I mean, and you don't understand all these these intimate situations in their life that are impacting them financially. You don't know about any of that because you don't have a conversation that deals with that. What comes to me is the the problem is we don't necessarily have a great relationship with our clients. We have great rapport with our clients, right? Like I I feel like I have a great relationship because, you know, we're, we're instantly connected and, and really chatty and, and always able to talk easily to each other whenever I sit down in those client meetings with my, with my best clients. But as you've kind of made the point, like relationships are built around the stories. That doesn't necessarily mean I know their stories and I know their life well. It just means we have great rapport, which matters, but is not actually the same thing as having a great relationship. I, I've never heard it put that way, but I like it. I like it a lot. There's a difference between rapport and relationship. I'm so excited. I might have like, I might have created a Mitch Anthony neologism out of out of this. Gonna- I, I, I I love it. I love it. It's a, it's a great conversation starter, right? Because we can all think of people in our lives where it's like, hey, how you doing? Hey, great to see you. Love talking to you. They don't know the first thing about us in our situation. And we wouldn't even tell them if they asked. <laughs> so, you know, it's, but I think that a real relationship is like, like I said earlier, is based on knowing their story and them knowing your story. You know, that's another topic that I talk to advise about all the time is how well do you communicate with your clients why you're doing what you're doing and why you're doing it the way you're doing it. That That's an important story to tell. So I feel like one of the eternal objections or, or at least pushbacks around this is, you know, Hey, yeah. It, if I had unlimited amounts of time, sure. I'd love to have these extended conversations with all of my clients, but I have a lot of clients and I run a business and there's only so much time and, and like, right. They just time becomes the constraint to go deep on all of these conversations. Yeah. It's actually a myth. And I, 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 I explode the myth constantly when I do workshops. I, I have an exercise called the eight-minute epiphany. And I, and, and I have them pair up, financial planners pair up. And I give them uh, 
three, two or three questions that they're going to ask each other, and they each get two minutes, three minutes, and then two minutes to answer those questions. So, or excuse me, it, it adds up to eight. I just gave you the wrong math there. I think I, I think it's I think it's three two three. Yeah, they get th- they get three two three to answer these questions, and then I have them process. Tell me what you learned about this person that you didn't know and that was instructive to you. And they're like, you can just see the light bulbs going off around the room. It's like, wow, I can't believe what I just learned in three minutes. One of those questions, quite frankly, is what was money like growing up? And I, I give them three minutes to answer the question. And it's amazing what comes forth in that time. And and another question is based on transitions. Is there anything happening in your life right now or that you see coming that could have a major impact on your financial future? They get three minutes to answer that question. And and so I I I created that exercise to explode the time myth because people always think, oh, I don't have time for that. Right. Like I, I got a lot of one-hour meetings with clients like – yeah, probably could get eight minutes worth of questions in. Yeah, you think you could. And by the way, would you allow me an audit of what you are talking about in those meetings and how important and impactful that is? No, probably would not be comfortable with you watching one of my client meetings. <laughs> how much time do we spend talking about the weather and the football game and this, that, you know, the the niceties, if you will. And yet we don't have time to ask a meaningful question. So that's part of why I spend so much of my time and energy and focus on designing questions well. So that to me, the very first thing that a question should the first impact it should have is that when you hear it, you're like, whoa, I've always wanted to answer that, <laughs> but no one's ever asked me, right? And it, and it gives people a place on the stage of life to to reveal who they are and in a meaningful way. And so that's why I love the whole process of working on questions and massaging questions. I, I literally feel like I run a question laboratory. Right. And and part of the reason I've been doing that is because I ran across questions I hated and I thought they were so awkward and weird. And it's like, don't ask questions that make people squirm. Don't 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 blindside people with questions. Give them questions they've been waiting their whole life to answer. And and so, again, like th- this is the stuff that like these are the kinds of questions or question library that you get with ROL advisor and those kinds of tools like that's what you're. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it is we just provide training around how to ask those questions and how to process the answers you get and how to the scripting, if you will, right, of how you introduce a new question, a new conversation, and then how you anchor that, that the answer you hear to what you're doing for them financially. So this is this is not esoterica, right? This is this is important stuff. So I like to pull back from the whole money conversation, the people that say, now I'm just too busy talking about the money. And I, I like to have those people answer this question. What is the money for? And everyone will give you the same answer. It, it ultimately boils down to it's for life. Okay. So you're telling me you want to have financial conversations without addressing the context of the money. You want to have the conversation without context is what you're telling me. When you say, I don't want to talk about that other stuff. Are we just off base about the value of financial planning? <laughs> what do you mean by that? I don't know. Like, I, I mean, you're making this point that like, yeah, at the end of the day, the, 
you know, people get the money because it's about their life and funding their life and funding the things they want to do and have to deal with in their lives. We often tend to talk more about the money than the life. Are, are we just somehow off base about our own value? Is this just like a giant training gap? We're too good at teaching about the money stuff and not good enough about teaching about the life stuff. So we all go to what's comfortable that we were trained in and and have trouble getting to these other conversations. No, I think I think those conversations are important, but I I think knowledge and wisdom are two different things. And ultimately, I want a wise financial advisor, not just a knowledgeable one. And wisdom means they understand my situation and they speak into it based on their experience and insights. That's the true I value. I would say that again. That, was, that was another planning. really good one. I want a wise financial planner and not just a knowledgeable one because the wise planner understands my situation and speaks into it based on their experience and insights, right? They've been through this before. They've seen this before. They can give me some insights that might be helpful. That's wisdom. And ultimately, that's the value that people are willing to pay for is wisdom, right? You've been down this track. You've got insights. You know, it's kind of like I, I joke around about this a little bit. One of my golf buddies is a, is the world's top-rated liver surgeon, right? And I'll ask him once in a while when we go out to golf, what, what's the number up to? Because he operates on kidneys, livers. He's done like 4,200 surgeries, okay? <laughs> That's a lot. And, 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 I always, and I always say to my audiences, I say, now, if you find out you had a liver issue, you want to go to him or the guy who's on his 23rd? Right? It's a no. And what if he charges more? Do you even care? Of course you don't. Because experience and insight means something. Wisdom means something. Having been down that road before and having seen this before and knowing what's going to work best, that means something. That's wisdom. And we're willing to pay for wisdom, sources of wisdom in our life. And I think financial planners need to, do, first of all, understand that is their greatest value. It's not their knowledge. It's their wisdom. And they need to do a better job of positioning themselves as wisdom merchants. Wisdom merchants. I like that. We are wisdom merchants. We are financial wisdom merchants. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like as a speaker, you know, I get calls. I speak at conventions all the time, you know, and people will call and they want to know about the knowledge you're going to bring or what are you, what are you going to teach them? And, and, I, and I flat out tell the people that call, I say, number one, I'm selling wisdom. Number two, I'm selling inspiration. If you're looking for your people to do things better and do them the right way and to leave with a spark of purpose in their life, I might be your guy, right? Don't be afraid to bring those things to the table. People want those things. So if it's all about wisdom and experience and, and the wisdom you gain from experience, so what's your advice to a younger, newer advisor who has not necessarily had the opportunity to actually accumulate that stuff yet since they're still mm -hmm. in early stages? Surround yourself with greatness, right? You know, I, I, I did a speaking tour for a major company in the United States, that a name everyone would recognize. And I spoke in like 12 different cities. And in every city, you know, there, there would be like two, 3,000 people in these, in these audiences. In every city, they would have the number one person in that region introduce me, right? And so it was always like some, somebody 55 years old who'd been in the business for 30 years. 
And when I came to Chicago, this kid was 30 years old, introduced me. So I had to I had to talk to him backstage. Like, how 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 could you be the top person in this region at 30 years old? He said, as soon as I graduated from high school and this company hired me, I said, I the only way I'll come to work for your company is if you'll allow me to spend one year in the top five people in this entire company, one year each in their offices to learn how they do it. So he had he had they allowed him to do that. He spent a year in the top five offices in the country one year each and learned how they did business and how they, how they did their planning and how they did what they did. And that's how we got there. So if you're a young person, you want to, you want to just get around people that are wise, people that have high integrity, people that, that, that are setting a pattern and a model for you that you want to uh, aspire to. And you want to, you want to just expose yourself to them, be there, absorb. Powerful point. It's a, it's sort of a, I don't know, there's kind of got a pay your dues aspect, but, but like, this is the good version of what pay your dues looks like, right? The bad version is just do, do, do crappy work for a while. Cause everybody else had to do crappy work. And, you know, I walked uphill in the snow both ways kind of mentality, but this is sort of a different angle of it of just, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm imagining for this young advisor, like, he may not have had the greatest job in each of those five offices for a year each, but he was there and he showed up and he paid his dues, as it were, to get immeasurable insight and wisdom and experience and now has 40 or 50 years to build his career <laughs> with, a, with a massively superior foundation for having spent a couple of years just doing whatever it took to be in the places where success was happening to be able to see it and experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I think, you know, you're, of course you're, you're, you've got the XY planning and I, I had the pleasure of being with you guys at your convention last year. That makes me, I feel a great sense of optimism when I see the twenties and 30 year olds that are getting into this business and the way they're wired and and I, I think I think we're going to see some major changes here in the next decade or two around how this whole process works. And and I've for a long time I've just you know I'm I'm so tired of the masquerade of financial advice, if you will, that's out there still. Right? It's just not it's just not true advice. It's just sales tactics and it's self serving. And I just it drives me nuts. And I think financial planning has not yet reached what the potential for purity that it has, it just hasn't reached it yet. And I think it's going to have to be life-centered and high integrity and transparent. And there are a lot of people practicing that way and they're wonderful people and their clients love them and they bring great value. And you know what? They make a great living doing it. And that's good. So what else are you working on next? You know, you mentioned Life Center Planners Initiative with Paul Armson, what you're doing with ROL Advisor. Are there other things kind of out there on the horizon for you since it seems like you're 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 in a world of continuously creating new things there's got to be something else bouncing around your head of what you're working well, on well it, it's 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 mo yeah there's there's a lot of things i'm working on but they're within that context because you know how's the old saying go when the student is ready the teacher will appear and i think there 
you know, for example, my schedule in the next couple months is I'm, I'm going to back to Y in London to talk to over 500 people there about life centered planning. Then from there, I'm going to South Africa and there's a firm over there that wants to bring life centered planning to the marketplace there. And then from there, I'm going to Australia to speak at their FPA national convention and, and about life centered planning. So I think, I think the world of financial advice is finally beginning to pay attention. And I think a lot of it has to do, Michael, with just seeing the erosion of the traditional value propositions and they're realizing we've got to do something different. So it's, I kind of feel like I've been working on this stuff for years and years and years, and now the world's really ready to hear it. So I just need to show up. It's a good position to be in. You know, spend 20 years developing it, then just show up. Success in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's, you know... <laughs> Developing ideas is a frustrating business. I've, I, I finally had an editor tell me, he's like, you just got to understand that by the time they get excited about something, you're bored with it, right? And you, you're a creative guy, Michael. You, you understand what I'm talking about, that, that sometimes you're, you know, I, and I think you do this too. You look out into the future and you say, where's this going to go? And you'd make your, you make your best guess right? And you start preparing for it and you work really hard. And then in my situation, I've, I've got more ideas gathering dust than you can imagine. And then suddenly someone comes along and goes, what about that idea? And I tell them, they're like, wow, I love that. And I'm like, well, where were you when I was excited about <laughs> You're like five years ago when I was beating the drum for that. <laughs> but so I've just, I've just had to, I've learned to just get patience with the process of creating ideas and, and also you just sort of have to tolerate, you know, the fact that maybe it's not as good an idea as you thought it was, or maybe it's time. It's not the right time. I think there's something, I think there's a parallel there in, in just the day-to-day reality of being an advisor as well. That whole framing of like, by, by the time they get excited about something, you're already bored with it. I, I know a lot of advisors that struggle when the business gets to a certain stage where, you're mostly in maintenance mode, and it's a lot of the same conversations with the same clients over and over again, one client after another. And you know, they may all be novel conversations for each client and impactful for them, but it's hard sometimes to bring yourself back to remember that because you're already bored with it because it's the same client, same conversations being introduced to the same clients over and over again. Yeah, I you know, and that that makes me think about the fact that there there are so many good advisors out there, so many good financial planners, and I just want them. I want to help fuel their sense of purpose about what they do because it is really important work. And I I come from um you know almost a spiritual point of view on all this that managing people's money is sacred territory in my estimation because of the price people pay to get what they get. Right, there are there are negotiations with life. There are compromises. There are hardships. There, there's a price to pay. We all pay it to get what we get. Now to turn over the administration and the handling and the investment of those resources to another human being, in my estimation, that's sacred territory, and that's a sacred trust, and that's why I so loathe people playing sales games in that territory. It's just not right. So, you know, I just want to, I, I just want the people that do this well to, to know they do it well and to feel that sense of purpose and feel that sense of mission and calling when they're sitting in front of clients, because it is really that important. So 
as we as we wrap up here, this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just that even the word success means very different things to different people. So you you've built successful businesses, you've you've put forth successful ideas that have reshaped, I think, a lot of areas of the industry. But when you look at this, just personally for yourself, how do you define success? I, to me, I hope this doesn't sound too out there. Living up to my calling, you know, I don't. The money, money's great, but who cares, really? Right? It's what am I designed to do? What am I designed to be? What you know, it becomes clear as you as you mature in life that. These are the things I'm designed to do. These are the things that just come naturally to me, or these are the things that really arouse my interest and curiosity. They fascinate me. And when I add up my personal DNA and the things that I'm interested in and the things that get my attention and the things I care deeply about, that all adds up into a recipe for me called a calling. And success is just living up to your potential to do what you're designed to do and to impact as many people in this world as you possibly can. I, one of my favorite phrases in life was by the theologian Dallas Willard, who said, everything in this universe that is of value is a person. So at the end of the day, for me, success is knowing I can impact personal relationships somehow for people around money. That's what I'm hoping for, occupationally, if you will, right? There's other, there's other aspects of, of life and success, but they all have to do with relationships in my book. I think you will impact a few people for the conversation we've had today around how they think about their relationship with money, how they think about their relationship with clients, so they think about their clients' relationships with, with money. And, and I think in particular for me, a little bit less focus on high-minded long-term goals and a little bit more about just helping clients through the never-ending stream of transitions they have because they don't stop. Life's always throwing curveballs at us and there's a tremendous amount of value to be created for clients just helping them transition, helping them navigate transitions and using your wisdom. Well, I'm indebted to you for wanting to have the conversation. I appreciate this and I know a lot of people listen to you and follow you as I do. We're both working in our fields, aren't we, Michael? <laughs> and we and we're, we're hoping we to are. see a harvest someday in terms of change in the industry and the industry being what it, it can be. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Mitch, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content, Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.